Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real Talk, Black Talk. And that's really hard for any one person to embody at the same time, and that's part of what makes Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. so revolutionary in his times. And later that afternoon, I attended the City of Tacoma's Martin Luther King birthday celebration, with guest speaker Melanie Cunningham, who remarked that in order for us to break past our color lines, we have to be willing to step over, to show love, and to make friends. She mentioned how the first part of building unity starts with us, starts with being willing to take that step. She was a little uncanny and said some things like, all your friends on Facebook are the same complexion as you. You've got some work cut out. Or, if everyone you work with looks like you, you've got to talk to your HR department. Get, get on that. <laughs> and she really brought up how personal accountability is part of what helps build in collective progress. So in order for us to shape the world to be a better place, we have to be willing to look at self and examine what it is that we are doing to contribute or help deconstruct the problems that exist in our society. And that's what Martin Luther King Jr. is really about. He was able to build together a community of people towards a collective purpose, but with the sole inspiration that each of us embody as well, to say, I'm going to take it upon myself to work for something greater than me and to work for the common good. So as we listen to our speakers tonight, I'd like to challenge us all to also self-reflect and think about what it is that he or she remarks upon that we can also do to examine ourselves and change our behaviors to work for the common good. And with that, I would like to invite you all to rise as we're able, as we sing our Black National Anthem to begin the program. I'd like to invite fellow students and BSC member Chantel Dozier with me on this stage as we sing verses one and three, which is listed in your program. Thank you. 
associated students of the University of Puget Sound and the Division of Student Affairs created the Keep Living the Dream Award as a way to recognize members of the campus community who have been exceptional leaders in the work for social justice in our community. The award was a particular vision of my predecessor, Yusuf Ward, Puget Sound's first African-American student body president. In its current incarnation, the award is presented by a committee of students and administrators to that student who best embodies Dr. King's legacy of work for inclusion and justice. This year's recipient was chosen from several excellent nominees representing a wide range of student passions and commitments. Any would have been a great choice for the award. However, we have committed to recognizing a single individual for this presentation, and so I would like to invite our 2015 Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Keep Living the Dream Award recipient to join me on stage. Will you please join me in congratulating Nakisha Renee Jones. justice and equality 
of which Dr. King spoke so eloquently, and toward which he marched at such great cost, a destination we strive for, but which we, like him, still gaze at from a distant mountain of our present moment, from the other side of the bridge we have yet to cross. The word Ferguson has become in recent months a potent and horrifying symbol of the fact that we must repeat and remind and reiterate and restate and reaffirm such fundamental truths as the fact that black lives matter, that people of color are people, fully enfranchised citizens, individuals with the same rights and worth as anyone else. Black lives matter. It's a powerful phrase, it's become so, to be sure as well as one that tragically seems so evident the truth that it should never have to be spoken. But it must, and it does. Black Lives Matter. I've been inspired in recent months by the work that our own BSU and recent pedagogy initiative have done this year on our campus right here in responding to the events we collectively refer to as Ferguson or Staten Island and by the prophetic power of this year's National Race and Pedagogy Conference on campus back in September, with which we began our first semester, that gathering of more than 2,000, which asked and responded to so powerfully uh, the question, what now is the work of education and justice? What now, indeed, is our work? As we, rem as we remember the giant legacy of Dr. King tonight and of Black History Month in the coming days, we will also be celebrating, as we know very well now, the 50th anniversary of Selma, certainly one of the landmark events in Dr. King's work and in the history of civil rights in America. As we all know as well, this year an Oscar-nominated feature film has been released on the subject to critical acclaim in an honor of this semi-centennial. Now we tend to think of the march from Selma to Montgomery, which took place as a point of reference just two years before I started college. And to remember so well, to secure uh, voting rights for people of color, we think of it as a major event in the long struggle. The facts on the ground were stunning and made Alabama the perfect place for this action to take place, a state where 50% of the population was African-American, and yet only 2% of its registered voters. The images of the film, if you haven't seen it, recall to us the images burned in our memories of the horror of what happened to those who marched that day to the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, only a short distance from their starting point, when they were met and turned back with such brutal violence and force by state troopers, with dogs beaten, clubbed, gassed, bitten, bleeding, and bruised for merely expressing their desire to exercise their right to vote. The events of that day earned the name Bloody Sunday. But that first Selma march on March 7th of 1965, with about five to 600 march marchers, led by John Lewis and others, was one of the three marches that took place within that month from Selma, with only the third at month's end, finally reaching its goal, the steps of the state capitol in Montgomery on March 25th. The Selma march then was not really a landmark event. It was a landmark process, a landmark series of events, an ongoing struggle itself that was and is part of a continuing struggle in which we are still engaged today, and in which Ferguson is only yet another chapter, and Michael Brown and Eric Garner only the latest casualties. Not even the latest casualties. After Bloody Sunday, and because of its tragic result, you'll remember that Dr. King led a second march from Selma only two days later on March 9th. This time, the group of 500 growing five-fold to some 2,500 protesters out onto the same bridge where the bloodbath had occurred only 48 hours before. This time, they were permitted to cross the bridge, but rather than continuing on to Montgomery, Dr. King halted the marchers when they got to the bridge. And after saying a prayer there, he turned the marchers back out of respect for a court order that had prevented the protest, returning to the church where they had assembled and begun at the march. His second Selma march was called Turnaround Tuesday, 
a more symbolic march indeed, but a powerful one that showed Dr. King's determination to remain true to his principles, to at once achieve the result, and to remain nonviolent and to obey the law. That night, three ministers participating in the march were brutally attacked and beaten, one of them killed, stirring the outrage of people all over the region and the nation. Now, after Bloody Sunday and Turnaround Tuesday, Selma had become a national rallying point. Finally, once President Johnson provided the assurance of federal protection Dr. King had sought, an Ohio State Court uh, overturned the earlier ruling and permitted the march, allowing the third and final Selma march to proceed from Brown Chapel in Selma over that same bridge yet again, this time all the way to Montgomery on March 21st. The third summer march began with some 8,000 marchers this time, and swelled by the time it reached its destination over three days to 25,000 Christians and Jews, black and white, Alabamans and supporters from around the country, now escorted by federal troops rather than attacked by state troopers, and with President Johnson already having presented to Congress five days earlier a petition to approve the Voting Rights Act, which he had drafted and submitted and which would make illegal the very obstacles to voting for blacks that many states had erected in Selma. This time, the march succeeded, and within months, Congress approved that bill, and it was signed by the President. The three Selma marches, then, one ending in tragedy, one in symbolic and silent protest, the third reaching its goal, achieving its objective, is a parable of the long march to justice as an ongoing struggle. It's worth noting that much had been done before Selma to guarantee voting rights for African Americans. The Civil War itself, the several amendments to the Constitution during Reconstruction following the war designed to ensure the full citizenship of people of color, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, only a year earlier, and all the events in the long history of struggle in between. And since, we know what has and what has not happened and how aspects of the Voting Rights Act have been recently undermined by a Supreme Court decision, how voting procedures in some states have again disenfranchised people of color. The story goes on from Monday Sunday to Turnaround Tuesday to sit-ins in the White House and protests at the Capitol and boycotts of Alabama companies to the 20,000-person march to Montgomery's Capitol steps and the final successful passage of the Voting Rights Act, all of which were part of the landmark Selma March, and will continue as the story of Selma's continuing process and remains an ongoing and unfolding story that we live out today. Tonight, we'll hear from one who's a major figure in continuing that story, a story that neither began in Selma nor ended there. Rosa Alicia Clemente is a widely regarded black Puerto Rican grassroots organizer, a hip-hop activist, journalist, and entrepreneur. Founder of Know Thyself Productions, Rosa has created two successful college and university tours, Dare to Struggle, Dare to Win, and Speak the Truth to Power. With degrees from the University of Albany and from Cornell, she's committed to scholar activism and youth organizing, and has become a leading voice in what we might call the next generation of the civil rights movement. Rosa has written for Clamor Magazine, The Black World Today, The Final Call, and has been the subject of articles in The Village Voice, The Amsterdam News, New York Times, and Red Eye Magazine. A writer and radio show host and scholar, she has appeared on CNN, C-SPAN, and Democracy Now!, Street Soldiers, and NPR. In 2001, she was a youth representative at the United Nations World Conference Against Racism in South Africa, and in 2002, was named by Red Eye Magazine as one of the top 50 hip-hop activists to look out for. So we're looking out. In 2008, she valiantly ran, valiantly ran for Vice President of the United States on the Green Party ticket. Rosa is still running. She's still marching on uh, and has many bridges that she will help us cross. As a daughter of hip-hop culture and its politics, it's fair to say that Rosa and her work are direct descendants of the civil rights movement. It's now generation. I'm honored to turn the stage and the microphone over now to Rosa Alicia Clinton.
So since this is the selfie age, we must, right? <laughs> That's so narcissistic. <laughs> the system is narcissistic. We have to celebrate life. Um, oh, wow. President Thomas, y'all are very lucky, right? So many people still can't say Black Lives Matter. You know, a call for humanity. We're very lucky to have a president that is progressive, truly progressive, in an age of oppression and reprisals and punishments. So um, give it up for your president. I would say that. <laughs> Should, should do. So, um, I don't know if they can turn on the lights a little, just they're super bright. Um, if you can, it's, I'll, I'll be able to deal with it. But, um, you know, I just want to thank all of you for being here tonight. I want to thank Dave Wright and Helen um, and everybody, who, all the students who worked to put this together. Um, I know what it is to be a student leader on campus. I was a student leader, so I know how hard it is to put out programs and it's always hit or miss. You never know what's going to happen. And, um, you know, I think everyone here really did an amazing job, treated me so well and professionally. So I really want to thank, um, but I really, really do want to thank David, um, who reached out to me a long time ago. And from the minute I said, this is what I need, He's made everything happen. So thank you, David. Thank you, Helen. Who's not here. And lastly, I want to shout out, um, well, it's soon to be Dr. Benitez. <laughs> right? Um, we're on a like, I'm like, you gotta hurry up because I'm like right behind you. You started before me, so let's go. You gotta be doctors so I can come to your um hooding and, and stuff. But me and Michael have um been friends in like this cyberspace for a while and in passing and things, but recently we've been really seeing each other around. And um, um, after I ran for uh, vice president, he was one of those people who had our back before and after the aftermath of daring to run against uh, President Obama and then the Democratic Party. Um, but you're very lucky to have someone like him on campus who gets it. And, and, and you know, who's, who's the, what we want, um, especially as, as people of color, really our role as academics is not to be academics. Our role is to be activist scholars or scholar activists. And I think um, Dr. Benitez, people say that's not good luck, but he's going to be there real soon. Um, you're very lucky to have him as well, and I'm very lucky to call him a friend. So, Each generation out of relative obscurity must find its mission, fulfill it, or betray it. That's France Fanon. Powerful people cannot afford to educate the people they oppress because once they are truly educated, you will not ask for power, you will take it. Dr. John Henry Clark. People get used to anything. The less you think about your oppression, the more you tolerate it. After a while, people think oppression is a normal state of things. But to become free, you have to be acutely aware of being a slave. Asada Shakur. Sometimes people hold a core belief that is very strong. When they are presented with evidence that works against that belief, the new evidence cannot be accepted. It would create a feeling that is extremely uncomfortable. What is that, you psych majors? No, there's not one psych major here that knows that's cognitive dissonance. What's going on? <laughs> and because it is so important to direct the core beliefs, they will rationalize, ignore, and even deny anything that does not fit in with that core belief. That's against Franz Fanon. To me, one of them um, of modern time, hands down, one of the greatest. 
thinkers, geniuses um, of the modern era. You really want to know what's going on in France and Europe right now? And not what we just saw 10 days ago, which I call the solidification of white power march that happened in France with all those leaders. Right, I'm gonna get into that. See, that's already people like, what's going on? <laughs> can't say that. France Phenomenon, watching what we call the Battle of Algiers. And understand that eventually oppression breeds resistance. And unfortunately, some people act inhumane in their resistance. But most people are acting as only oppressed people should act, which is by rebelling so that they can be free as well. So I'm going to read an article. An hour ago, a group including poet Jessica Camor, Talib Kweli, the Dream Defenders, Occupy the Hood, Hands Up, Lost Voices, and many others were chased like animals by the cops. As we ran to get away, we found ourselves on a small path on a bridge. Is that, can I look at the water? Oh, okay. Is, is that? Sorry. As we ran to get away, we found ourselves on a small path on a bridge, surrounded by police from various units and told to lie down and put our hands up. We were told if we did not stop moving, we would be shot. We complied. Let me be clear. We did nothing to provoke this. The fact that I have to write this says that lives don't matter. The first hour we were there, we merely walked and talked to folks. People were moving as they were told they had to and chanting. See, in the free speech area of Ferguson, you couldn't actually stand for more than five seconds and talk to anyone. Right before that, I had ran into members of the Pico Clergy Network. As a prayer vigil came together, thank you, I observed that the police seemed to be very agitated. Because people were being still. They were talking, they were in community. I stood watch. Talib and Jessica were in a circle with young people who began to notice particularly who Talib Kweli was. And it seems at that moment, the best of hip hop was about to pop off what we call an impromptu cipher. I kept my eye on the crew we were with, the amount of police officers and National Guard, as well as private security that were lined up all the way to the back, were just twice, I, I was counting, just as many, as many protesters and organizers. As a longtime activist against police brutality, I have been trained by elders and by people in my organization, the Malcolm X grassroots movement, to always be alert, stay focused. So I was keenly aware when something shifted. I felt the energy, but I saw the police in the back start to move forward. I stepped to Talib and I said, something's about to go down. Within seconds, we saw the police raising their batons and getting into formation. As I wrapped up a conversation with Tremaine Lee of MSNBC, we saw a plastic water bottle being thrown. People kind of looked up, turned back to what they were doing, and the next thing you know, the police came at us like charging bulls, weapons drawn, screaming, causing mass confusion. Leave the area now, don't move. Jessica Talib and I grabbed hands and ran. Officers swooped in on us from all directions and locked us down with about 13 other people. Their threats, their eyes, postures, weaponry said it all. We have the power, we don't care how many cameras are here. I held Devin, one of the young brothers that was there with us, who struggled to control his breathing. He said, I'm choking. A cop told him, stop, I'll shoot you. I told Devin, try not to move, just lay still, I got you. The gun was right at his chest. I, look at, I looked at the cop and said, please, please, he is not doing anything. I tried to record this incident with my phone, but the cop had his finger on the trigger. There were 15 of us laying on the ground, and all I could hear is the two white women behind me, face down, one bloody, one hysterically crying, please don't kill us, please don't kill us. I could feel Talib's hand on, the back, on my back and Jessica behind me. We laid there until finally one black officer said, let them go, we got who we wanted. 
In my life, I have never been so terrified. I've been doing organizing and activist work for 22 years. As we walked away, the brother that was with us, one of, it was a couple brothers that was with us, they were young. Devin later said to me, thank you. I think you saved my life. This is simply one account of a small group of us. If these young people of color with us last night did not know where they stood, they surely know now, and they were told just as much. But yet, they, although they are tired, they're still determined. They were deflated but not defeated. They were longing for direction and leadership that is not coming from an older generation. They are acquiring knowledge in this moment, and they are awake. They're breaking off the choke of respectability politics. While they were grateful for our presence, they shared with us the frustrations of so-called leadership in our communities, and I cannot blame them. In the midst of last night's unrest, I saw many older people of color shaking hands and laughing with the police. Malcolm called this the house Negro. Some of them were actually angry at these little young brothers and sisters for standing up, telling them to go home. The young people replied, this is our home. This might not be the most eloquent, succinct, 500-word essay, but on the real, the moment I saw that rifle pointed at Devin, I looked at that white, bald-headed man, and I saw his eyes. I feared the moment that so many black and Latino and Latina men and women face potential death by the state. All I could think about is my daughter hugging me, telling me, be careful, mommy. The police hurt women, too. The split second you think, your life is over is one of the most harrowing things one could ever experience. What is going down here in Ferguson and all my years of activism and organizing I've never seen. This is a war zone, a military occupation, and our children are cannon fodder. Devin and his boys got to go home that night. They get to go home tonight. I hope they always get to go home. That's Ferguson. That's one account of 15 of us in a night when the police said it was the best night after 12 days of unrest. See, what I've learned since Ferguson, 187 days almost of sustained protest and action around this country is that people of color were not meant to survive the American experience. We were not meant to survive slavery. We were not meant to survive the Middle Passage. We were not meant to survive colonialism. We were not meant to survive imperialism, genocide, apartheid, Jim Crow, sexual assault, rape, the CIA, the FBI, COINTELPRO, charter schools, gentrification, mass incarceration, and anti-immigrant legislation, which is really anti-Latino, Latinaness, and brownness in this country. We weren't meant to survive that. But now that we've survived it, and we resisted, the system of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism does not know what to do with us. So they enslave us, imprison us, restrict our movement, take away educational opportunities, close our factories, impose racial surveillance, institutionalize racism in every institution, education, politics, economics, entertainment, sexuality. And when that fails to stop us, they kill us. Then they kill our young girls and our boys. Ayanna Jones, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Andy Lopez, Rakia Boy. Or they make us political prisoners and prisoners of war like Oscar Lopez, Rivera, Leonard Peltier, Jalil Muntikin, Russell Maroon Schultz, David Gilbert, Mumia Abu-Jamal. Or they choke us to death, either literally or through economic injustice. And when that fails to stop us, they build walls to keep us out of our original lands. Those names, Oscar Lopez and Leonard and Jalil and Russell and David and Mumir, are the names you should know. See, we talk about political prisoners in America. These are political prisoners in the United States of America right now. Right now, all have done over 40 years. 
all of them coming out of the 50s, 60s, 60s and 70s, not civil rights, black power, brown power, red power era. David Gilbert, a white anti-imperialist that helped free Asada Shakur, sits in an upstate prison, member of the Weather Underground, that put his white life on the line for black liberation. Right? So that's why I talked about that march in Paris, France. That was not about free speech. If you said, Josue Charlie, what are you saying? That you're about free speech and call satire when we know Molly Iris said that satire is for the rich. Satire is not for rich people to oppress more people, poor people, people of color. That's not what satire is supposed to do. That's the tool that we use to talk about the 1%, not the tool of the 1% to talk about the 99%. That entire paper is an anti-Muslim rag. That's what that is. That march was a solidifying of white power in this way. That those masters and mistresses of war that marched. You talking about free speech? There's been 119 people arrested in France since that march. All Muslim. That's free speech? comedian gets arrested because of Facebook posts. That's free speech. But you know, France, I mean, France isn't operating that same way in terms of how we think about free speech, but even free speech in this country is limited. But I really think that that march on a global level was saying, you want to say Black Lives Matter, we're going to show you how they don't matter. And we're going to start with these masters of war and these empire builders, and, 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 and the president of Israel leading it all while he's genocidal around Palestinian people. You know, today, in USA Today, it was reported that by 2016, get this, by 2016, 1% of the world's population will hold 50% of the wealth. Think about that. One percent of the world's population will hold 50 percent of the world's wealth. That's leaving out a lot of white people too. One percent is going to own half the world. Think about what that means. In, such, in, in this country, think about what that means, what it means globally. To me, that march was, in a way, a response to us claiming Black Lives Matter. That march was them showing us that Black lives don't matter to them, to that system, whether they're Black lives in Ferguson or Black in Brazil, Black in Nigeria, Black in Puerto Rico, Black in France, Black in Australia, Black in Palestine, Black in Mexico. As we are crying and fighting for black lives, they are telling us not only don't you matter, we will use everything at our disposal, including the state and military apparatus to silence you. And if not, we will torture you. And if not, we will drone you, your families and your celebrations. The killing of young black and Latino men and women is nothing new. The first police in this country are found to do what? round up runaway slaves. This is nothing new. There's a great hip hop artist. His name is Hassan Salam. He has a song called Jericho with another great hip hop artist, Immortal Technique. And he says, racism been stayed right on track and none of it changed because the president's black. None has changed because the president is black. Just like none of it will change if the president's Hillary Clinton a mistress of war and patriarchy. And I'm going to say it right now. Be very careful, young folks. Be very careful about 2016. Question a presidential election that's going to cost $4 billion. Question the fact that it could potentially be another Bush or Clinton. That's called empire building. 
That's a dynasty, not a democracy. And why is that? Because everyone in Congress are multimillionaires. The average person in here could never run for office. Well, no, we could run. <laughs> the potential of winning is so low because of the corporate money that's been infused, because of Citizens United, because our presidents are going to be sponsored by Coca-Cola. This, we've been talking about this in my generation for 15 years. And people say, you crazy, it's conspiracy. When capitalism is crumbling as it is, it's not working for the majority of people in America, irregardless of color at this point. It's not working for the majority of people in America. What do you do with all extra human beings? What do you do to make sure that people don't come together around an issue that can unite us? Economic justice, which is what Dr. King was talking about at the end of his life, which is why he becomes dangerous. When he's talking about civil rights, that's not dangerous. Civil rights movement was a movement to legislate. There's no resurgence of a civil rights movement. Any historian, and that's why we need to teach history. Movements end, eras end. Dr. Keene, at the latter part of his life, was so radicalized because he was not only understanding justice in the terms of, uh, of economic justice, he was also internationalizing himself in terms of what is going on around the world, what's going on in South Africa around apartheid. You know, what does it mean that, as he said, most black people in the South at that time, medium uh, annual income was $3,000. He was even questioning voting, right? So be careful, young folks, in 2016, when you start getting job offers around get out the vote, get out the vote for what? For power and dynasty building? Half the people in this country are, who are registered to vote don't vote. I don't think that's because they're apathetic or stupid. Maybe not voting is a form of resistance. People, so we have to, so as we're looking in this moment to transform society, only way we transform it is to transform how we think about things, how we question things. Why are there no oppositional forces? Why is the mainstream media a joke? You know? We don't even question the fundamental individual things in our lives. Let's say somebody in here don't care that black lives don't matter. I don't know everybody in here, so I, I don't know. I'm sure there's somebody in here who's like, I really don't all right, well, you'll care about your student loan debt when Navion or Sally Mae starts calling you to get their money and you didn't get that job that you thought you were going to get, right? So we have to question that kind of stuff. Like, even question, why are you paying for higher education? It's just a human right. It should be free in the most industrialized, developed nation but we're the most in debt. There's 44-year-olds still paying their student loan, me. And there are people around, what is that? But it's interesting, your generation is, in, is not even demanding jobs once you get out of college. You know, we gotta question this stuff. For me, college is not a place where you just come and get a degree to get a job. First of all, anyone in college is privileged right now. I'm finishing my doctorate. I know I'm privileged. Most of my family's in the hood in the Bronx. Never had the opportunities I had. I didn't go to college to get a job. I, I, I went to fundamentally learn how to be a critical thinker, to question authority, to come up with innovative ideas, to be visionaries, not to sit in class and be passive. Right? We ought to think about these things. So in Ferguson, the reason that moment is so important 
It's a historical intervention into what had been happening until then. According to the Malcolm X grassroots movement and a report that some of us worked on, and you've heard the phrase every 28 hours, that comes out of a report that I was part of on getting out into uh, the ethos of the world. In 20, um, we wrote the report in 20, 2012, 20, yeah, it came out in 2013. And what we found in this report is that every 28 hours, an African-American man, woman, or child was being killed by law enforcement, security, guards, or vigilantes, aka like George Zimmerman, like him. And um, as we're going to update this report to add Latinos, y Latinas, as well as um, Muslim men and women, we're going to see that number potentially drop to every 16 hours, right? People are like, that's, that's a crazy number. Well, in Brazil, it's actually every six hours that an Afro-Brazilian young person is shot by the police, right? So, so this is not that this not, has not been happening. The turning point in Ferguson is that they also let Michael Brown lay out there for four and a half hours in front of people. But also Ferguson, where it is, the fact that it was a lot of what we call sets, some people call gang members, that were the first ones that went to the police station and were confronted in such a horrific manner by the militarized police. So you know that a lot of these police are militarized because after 911, the country lost its collective mind and, and went and bought weaponry and is giving weaponry to, you know, St. Louis and Iowa and Utah. And I don't, nobody should have it, period, at this, but smaller cities, right? So that response from Ferguson, where it's, it's young, it's young people, it's homeless young people, then it's queer young people, then it's women on the front lines. And then for days, we're seeing images of the US, basically the National Guard, tear gassing. American citizens. But we've seen that before a little bit in the 50s or 60s. That's why you need to go see Selma if you haven't seen it. I mean, you should know this history, right? But that Ferguson moment also broke this traditional way and this thing we call respectability politics, right? So I'm not going to curse as Rosa. I'm just going to basically tell you what so many young people were telling us. Right, so um, basically when we were down there, I mean, obviously we heard F the police a lot. But there was a moment where some of the older leaders in the community or whatever um, were like, we have to pray, we have to pray, and the young people were like, F your moment of silence. And I was like, oh, this is real different than I see. They just said, F your moment of silence to the minister. <laughs> we, we're popping now, right? Like, respectability politics is gone, right? The idea that the way we demand our humanity as black and brown people for, um, uh, you know, other folks, that, Latinos that might not have their racial consciousness raised yet. If you haven't, you should by now. Um, but that idea, right? Like, we're not asking anymore. We're not voting anymore, rejecting voting, rejecting all the traditional things, right? Because where has the traditional ways gotten us? You got a third generation, or no, fourth generation of mostly African-American, Latino youth heading into the prison system still. You know, and, and when you talk about this idea of policing, right, they were like, if the police police like they police in white communities, we'd be all right. But although these killings happen, like the numbers I'm giving you, and these are the things that bring our attention to policing, you have to understand in communities of color, we are under occupation by the police. I've lived in the hood, I grew up in the hood, and I've grown up in middle class, rich suburbia. I understand clearly the difference in policing. But in the last 10 years, this idea of policing everything we do, 
Everything, including our bodies, how we speak, what we walk, how we talk, everything is policed. And it's policed from the minute young people are leaving their building, their home, doing school. School is the worst than you coming out of school and trying to get home safely, right? This is the daily kind of occupying force that young folks of color feel that under, not only young folks of color, okay? Because Eric Garner was not young, and every victim of police brutality is not young, and every victim of police brutality is not a black man. Ayanna Jones, seven years old, killed by the Detroit police. Tamir Rice, did you see the video? You need to see the video of this stuff. Because I don't think people understand that these police came out and within two seconds shot a 12-year-old in a park. But the executioner and mass murder in Newtown, oh, not Newtown, the Colorado thing, you know, they took him in alive. He's going to trial. Not that Michael Brown and them were criminals. You know, and I know some people all say, well, he stole this, he stole that. Who cares? I don't care if he had punched a woman, he carjacked somebody, and shot somebody. There's something in America called due process. But apparently when you're not treated as an American citizen, you can just be executed by the police with impunity. That's what happened. Then on top of it, these cops that keep killing don't even get arrested. We can't even get a trial. Not that that's what people are looking for. So that's what these young people were seeing, history. They're not coming out of this out of a vacuum. I really feel the need to have to explain that, right? Because people were so degraded. And it's not just like the Fox News or the conservatives. You have liberals questioning. Well, with his hands up? Who cares if his hands up? He was chased like an animal and shot and shot in the head. The autopsy was the autopsy lying. <laughs> Did we not see Eric Garner being choked to death saying I can't breathe 13 times? Did we not see what happened to John Crawford at Walmart? Do we not see that George Zimmerman walks away and then what? The dude just got arrested last week for what? Assault or whatever. Right? When are they going? This dude's never. He's like a super. It's amazing. He's been arrested or stopped by the police six times since he got off for killing Trayvon. Think about that. Now let me say, George Zimmerman is Latino. He's Peruvian. That's a whole different level of conversation around that. that what that then means to be Latino? Because if that's Latino, I know me and Michael and other cats. That's not the Latino we're talking about, right? But he's acting at the behest of white supremacy. Essentially, you know? So as Dr. King says, where do we go from here? In terms of, what's my time frame? Five minutes, okay. In terms of, <laughs> no, I mean, I can keep going. I'll just check it in. So this idea of economic justice is so critically important. In a time where so many people in America are just struggling to live, you know, just really struggling to live and pay rent and and, and eat and make sure that their family's okay. Voting and where we're at and what that means and what electoral politics look like, what can it deliver, can it deliver anything anymore for the people? I don't know, I do know that, as Dr. King has said in one of these, uh, this new undiscovered speech by Pacifica Radio that just aired a couple of days ago, that he did in London, he was talking about the devilishness and the wickedness of not having the vote, but then the vote being so hard to attain. And here we are, right, in 2014, and what have they done? Eviscerated the Voting Rights Act and institute all this redistricting as well as instituting IDs, right? What does that mean? The easiest thing one should be able to do as a citizen is go vote. It should be a national holiday. Just go vote, show up, you vote. That's it. But you know, that's, that's power. We, we talk about like layers and systems of power. And then the illusion that there's democracy. And that's what it's really about, the illusion that there is. So what we've also seen during this Black Lives Matter is 
you know, I'm often surprised when people are like, oh my God, white people are marching. I'm like, well, kind of if you look at history, right? Um, especially in the 60s and 70s, there have always been not white liberals, but white anti-imperialists or white progressives or organizations that, that stood for third world people, black and brown folks and indigenous rights and all, all of that thing. But for a younger generation of um, white uh, allies, as, as people like being called, you know, I, I like the fact that people are talking about white privilege. But, you know, if that's all you're doing is talking about it and you're not willing to give it up, then what are you really talking about? And what does it mean to give it up? What does it mean to have a personal sacrifice? What does it mean to be a white person that says, I'm riding with y'all. I'm gonna step aside, I'm gonna ride with y'all. Or if not, how do I work within my community to raise the consciousness in my community? How do we understand that there is shared histories of resistance of people who are radical in this country? See, those are important things, those are important histories to share. We have to name the system we're under. And we're under a system of white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy. And we all partake in it, especially the capitalist one. So when I go out tonight and I leave a tip, I'm partaking in the system. But I'm going to acknowledge it. It's a high contradiction. I'm going to acknowledge it. But every day, I'm actually in the process of trying to dismantle or transform that in any action that I'm a part of or any organizing effort. And we have to look at this moment as not a new civil rights movement. Oh, I'm so tired of that question. I'm like, no, this is not a new civil rights movement. First of all, this is a movement for humanity. Our humanity as black people globally all over the world. It's not about public policy. We have so many laws on the books, they never get applied, right? We have to say that soon America will be a majority country of black and brown folks. But we also have to be clear that that could just very well mean we're moving towards an apartheid state of a majority group of people ruled by the minority. And even within that minority of white collective people, there's a 1% ruling that white collective as well. That's the next level we have to go to in terms of how we have these discussions. One that is a majority people of color ruled by the minority white collective, but even that white collective will end up leaving its, uh, that 1% that will end up leaving its own white poor and white disenfranchised and white marginalized communities. Because as the American empire is on decline, the capitalist system, even as parasitic as it is, will accommodate for the ones that are not the one, will accommodate the ones that are the 1%. And then it won't accommodate for the rest. That's how they keep the majority of us divided. France Fanon talked about first we recognize this moment is a contemporary moment that we can name as the era of civil rights, not just civil rights movement. Um, civil rights movement, but the era. Then we resist. We can look back at the black-brown power era of the late 60s to early 70s, and then we rebel. This is where we're at right now, what Fanas talked about, recognize, resist, and rebel. We're in the rebellion stage. The Black Lives Matter is a rebellion. It's not a hashtag. It's not a selfie. It's not a tweet. It's not a Facebook status. It's not a trend. For me and many people in the Black Lives Matter movement all over the world, this is our lives. It should be all of our lives. But we know all too well that white lives matter. That's why we have to say black lives matter. But then all of us have to do something big every day. Every day, I try to expose the system. That's my job as an academic, as a scholar, as a journalist. I have to expose the system. 
I have to be a critical thinker about how to transform that system once it's exposed. And as W.E.B. Du Bois taught us, then we strike a hammer to the system every day. It's the least, especially, that black and Latino people in this country could do. We only enjoy the freedom we have because of resistance, not because of liberal policies. We only enjoy it because of the sacrifice of our ancestors, our elders, our freedom fighters, our war veterans, the veterans we call OGs, the one that survived the assault known as COINTELPRO. We have to be unapologetic, unafraid, as Shirley Chisholm said, unbossed. We have to say we will not compromise, we will not bend, we will not be passive. Frederick Douglass said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. It's my favorite quote of Frederick Douglass, and I'm surprised that people really don't know sometimes who Frederick Douglass is. I got to find a quote. That's how I always end every speech. It's such a powerful quote. No progress without struggle. Let me give you a word of the philosophy of reforms. The whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concessions yet made to her August claims have been born of earnest struggle. The conflict has been exciting, agitating, all-absorbing, and for the time being, putting all other turmoils to silence. It must do this or it does nothing. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men and women who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one or it may be a physical one or it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did. Find out just what a people will submit to and you have found out the exact amount of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. And those will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those who, them, who they oppress. So we say, Black lives ain't matter here. 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 I can't say black lives ain't matter here. 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 Peace, everybody.
is not the end. We know this, we knew this at the Racing Pedagogy Conference where it was about the work beginning and what now. We've known this when we had our die-in in the sub. We've known this as we've wrestled and struggled and talked and cried. This is not going to resolve the work that has to happen in our community. In your program, there are some additional upcoming events. I won't read them out, but over the next four weeks, we have three additional speakers that are coming through the SWOPE committee, through CICE, uh, connections through Michael and others. Please come and join us for this and keep the conversation going. This is a rich place, and as Rosa was talking about critical thinking, and the need to challenge and interrogate and work through the systems that we bring with us. I was thinking of being a student here 20 years ago, how important that was to me and being taught that challenge. That was true then, it's true now. For all of us who are part of this community, whether we're faculty, staff, or students, neighbors and friends, we need to be asking these questions. As we have shifted this program over the years, instead of ending with a closing blessing and having it feel like a church service of some kind, we instead end with ascending forth, with that invitation to get out of here and do something, to go forward from the words and the challenges and the celebrations and the moments that we've had in this short 90 minutes, and live this semester and this life as though we are going to make a change. That is, for me, the heart of the legacy of Dr. King. That is a part of what I hope we are about as a campus community. That's a part of what I heard in Rose's challenges to us and to our society. So go forth from this place of passion and song, of tears and hopes and possibilities and frustrations, and live not for a distant dream or a pie in the sky, but with a hunger for justice now a thirst for change now, and through it all with the knowledge that none of us is in this work alone. May we go not in peace, but in passion. Thank you. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.